Well, thank you for your testimony earlier. It's great to sit here and listen to those things. If you ever want to be a fly on the wall listening to things, being me sitting up here front and listening to what people say about what they're hearing from you is a great joy, especially in light of James 3 that says you'll be held accountable for every word that you say. And there's actually people listening. That's both joyful and frightening because you listen and uh, that means you do what is said and uh, and so it is imperative that I say what God says so that you do what God says not what I say and so it's a great joy just to hear that um, as I was listening it's it's an interesting thing to know well it's a great thing to know and a joy to know that the teaching that you receive not just here but in Bible studies and those things is done well and so you learn from those things as well and so that's a testimony to our church and uh, what God is doing here but also it's interesting when we think about the whole term legalism I've talked about this I think in the past and Joe you kind of mentioned it for a minute there when people who attach obedience or the requirement of following the commands of God as if that's legalism. It's always interesting to me when I hear that because if that's legalism, then Jesus Christ was the greatest legalist that there ever was because he did everything always and yet by it earned nothing because he's righteous in and of himself and his righteousness was what we have based upon who he is and he obeyed the law perfectly in his humanity perfectly because he was yet without sin and so legalism has nothing to do with obedience other than the fact that if you think you can earn something through obedience then you're a legalist it's just a a great comfort to me to know and listen to the testimony of this church and people here who say, no, obedience is what God expects of us because we're Christians, not in order to be a Christian. And so it's great to hear that. So thank you for that. You know, when I first came here 12 years ago, the evening service was that Randy had always kind of done this testimony time. And it was a little odd to me. I'd never been in a church where, where that really happened on a regular basis. From time to time, people would do that. And it was a bit odd to me. And yet over the years, it's grown on me as, a, as one of the special times of our church where we get to, to really share with each other those kinds of things. So thank you for doing that. Well, it's great for us to be here once again as we open the Word of God together. So I'll ask you to just bow with me for a word of prayer before we do that. Father, we thank you again for this time tonight, time to once again open your Word. That's the only thing that we find to be foundational and solid for us. Nothing else the world says, nothing else our own human flesh can conjure up give us the answers for life and for godliness and we only find truth here we know it not anywhere else and so we thank you for giving us the spirit that we might understand lord attend to our time and cause us to be encouraged cause us to be strengthened cause us to be equipped that we might be better servants of yours as we sojourn here in jesus name we pray amen well i i trust you've been gleaning a a whole lot from our time in the study of John's gospel, particularly the last few studies, because we have been focusing our attention, as you have testified, on the trial and coming crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles open or not, please turn to John chapter 19, where we find ourselves in our study. 
And I want to begin tonight by reading for us just verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7. We've, we've covered verses 1 through 5 in, in earnest, but I want to focus our attention on verses 6 and 7, particularly on a phrase in verse 7 that I think we all must deal with. It says this, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jesus answered, and the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. We, of course, have been looking at the trial of Jesus Christ. There are several things that are true about trials, especially trials that we know of here in the Western world. The trials here, there is always a judge, someone who mitigates the operation of the courtroom. There is one there, the judge, who makes sure that things go according to what the laws are supposed to happen. Then there is always the accusation or the charge that it's brought against the accused. Someone is in court because they have been accused of something. And there are those who bring the charge against the one who is being accused. And there is the one then being charged. There's the judge, there's the charge against the accusation, there's the ones who bring the charge, and then there is the one being charged, or the defendant. And oftentimes, here in the West, not all the time, but oftentimes you have another part of the trial, and that is the jury. The jury. In a jury trial, the judge isn't the one who makes the final decision as to whether the person is guilty or whether they are innocent. That's not his job. He's there to make sure the law is brought about in legal fashion. The ones who make the decision as to the guilt or innocence of the one accused is the jury. The jury sits. The jury listens to the case as it's being argued by both sides within the trial. The judge ensures that the trial goes according to the law. And then the jury determines innocent or guilt. Well, as we have been studying through this passage in John's Gospel, there is one of those elements that is not formally there. There is no formal jury to determine innocence or guilt. We have all the rest. We have the judge. We have Pilate, at least in the current section that we are in before it was the Sanhedrin. So we have the judge that is there. We certainly have the accusation being brought against. We have those who are bringing the accusation against the accused. And we have the accused who is present. But there is no formal jury. And yet, 
as we read this passage, as we look at it, as we sit here 2,000 years later, there is, in a sense, a jury which is present in the case. It's not written here. It's not in the text for us, but the jury is here listening. The jury is watching. And the jury will have to come to a conclusion as to the charge against Jesus Christ. So who is the jury? The answer to that question is a simple one if we just think about it. The jury is all of us. The jury is humanity itself. All of us who are human beings. Every person who has ever walked on the face of this earth. All of those who were there that day when the trial of Christ was in fact taking place. Those who had come before in history and those who will come after. We are all forced to give a verdict concerning Jesus Christ. Now... We remember what is happening within the Gospel of John. We are moving very quickly now to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Before long, He will be crucified. And we have to answer one question concerning Him. Who is Jesus? Who is He? Who is this one who gave His life that day on Calvary? That's the question posed to every human who has ever breathed the breath in this world. And that not, may not sound like all that important of a question, especially for us who are sitting here tonight. Many of us have already given our answer to that. But the question is the most vital question that has ever been asked. Because the value of his death has everything to do with who he is. You say, what do you mean? Well, if Jesus is just a common criminal, as he is being accused of here, then he is just simply getting what he deserved. If Jesus is just a man who walks the earth and who does some crime, then he is just getting what his crime is bringing to him and his death is just another death in a long line of people who have done something to face a fate that is not going to be good for their longevity of life because they made some bad decision in life. They're just criminals. The law is the law. The law is unbending. He's just facing the reality of the law. But if Jesus is not a criminal then we have somewhat of a moral problem as humans. If Jesus is an innocent man because he has not done what he is accused of, then his death and his crucifixion, his execution is a clear picture of a graphic miscarriage of justice. And even though he courageously endures through it all to the end, it's still a massive moral failure of humanity. Something we all must face. But if Jesus is what he claimed to be, if he is God, 
then his death has monumental significance for you and for me. And so in a sense, as we look at the accounting of the death of Jesus Christ, we are left as the jury. And we have to make a decision as to who is right in this case. And the inevitable question about his identity is staring us right in the face here in verses 6 and 7. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Now, if you remember what we studied back in chapter 18, Jesus has already had charges leveled against him various times. You remember, the first thing they accused him of, and we we looked at this back in Matthew 26 very quickly when we were looking at the trial in John chapter 18, that they accused him that he could destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. They accused him that he was going to destroy the physical temple that they honored so much, and in three days he would rebuild it. That was the first accusation they brought against him. The second accusation was in John 18, verse 30, when they brought him before Pilate, and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer and say to him in 1830, if this man were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. So that's the second accusation. Not only is he one who says he can destroy the temple and build it in three days, but he's an evildoer. Third, we... Passed by these quickly in Luke chapter 23. Third, they said he was perverting the nation. He was one who was upsetting people, upsetting the nation itself. In Luke 23, it gives us a fourth accusation that he was forbidding the Jews to pay taxes. They were trying to conjure up some kind of sense in which Pilate might hear their case. And so they brought in the the Roman side of things. So first, he's accused that he could destroy the temple. Second, he's accused as an evildoer. Third, he's accused of perverting the nation. Fourth, he's accused of forbidding others to pay taxes. And then fifth, he's accused of stirring up the people, Luke 23. Somewhat like the other one, that he was perverting the nation. He's telling mistruths and telling people to go against the law, but he's he's stirring up the people. He's causing an uproar amongst the people. They didn't stop there. There was a sixth accusation against Jesus. They accused him of that he had made himself a king. Luke chapter 23 again. So no less than six times had they accused him of different things. Here he is, the defendant in the court, the one who has been brought in, arrested at night by this band of people. And now here he is under these six accusations. And all of those are very concerning things. All of them have their potential for severe punishment if found guilty in the ancient courtroom. But what's stunning to me 
And what should really shock all of us is that none of those things are what Jesus is finally charged with. He's not finally charged with being someone who could destroy the temple and rebuild it. He's not finally charged with someone as an evildoer in one sense. He's not charged with being perverted, perverting the nation or causing the Jews or saying the Jews shouldn't pay taxes, stirring up the people or making himself out to be a king. The Jews hated Jesus. Not, not for any of those reasons that they accused him. That's not why they hated him. They hated Jesus for the same reason that many don't want to have anything to do with Jesus today. It's no different back then than it is today. They hate Jesus because he claimed to be the only God. They hate Jesus because Jesus claimed to be deity. And to them, that was blasphemy. To others today, it's lunacy. It's lunacy. Certainly, the undertone of being the Son of God is included in all of those previous accusations. Certainly, that undertone is there, particularly in his statement concerning the temple. And the Jewish leaders knew what he meant. They knew what he meant by that. They knew the implications of that. They knew that he was speaking about his own coming death and subsequent resurrection. They knew that. You say, how did they know? Well, how else do you explain that they sent guards to the tomb and had it sealed after he was crucified if they didn't know what he meant by saying, I'm going to raise in three days. I'm going to rebuild the temple in three days. You, you bring this temple down, it will be built in three days. How else do you explain that other than the fact that they knew what he was speaking about? They knew he was talking about resurrection. So you ask yourself, as you look at this, as you read this, as you think about this, why all the other charges then? Why all of those other charges? There's really only one simple answer. They needed Pilate's involvement. They needed Pilate to be involved because the Roman court didn't care about any charge of blasphemy. The Roman court cared nothing about those kinds of activities. Blasphemy was nothing in the Roman court. It was not, they, there was no law against that. That's exactly why Pilate says that to them. You take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Their charge meant nothing. The charges that they brought before him, Pilate were nothing to him. In Pilate's court, Jesus was accused of insurrection. He was accused of someone who's in danger of, of bringing, a, bringing down Roman rule. And so it was a shock to the Jewish wicked hearts of those who brought him that day when Pilate pronounces that Jesus is innocent. It must have shocked them to the core when he brings him out after having him scourged and they say, crucify, crucify. And Pilate says, you take him yourself and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. Pilate knew they couldn't crucify Christ themselves. He knew that. And whether he was trying to say, listen, you, you can't do anything without my approval and I'm not approving of this, or whether he was just trying to rid himself of the problem altogether, probably a little of both. Either way, they must have been shocked. And it's in the reply 
to Pilate that we hear the charge against Jesus so clearly. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself out to be the Son of God. We have a law, and if you violate that law, the only penalty is death. And this one has violated that law. He has made himself out to be the Son of God. In verse 5, Pilate says, Behold the man. And now in the courtroom, now the jury, now you and I are faced with a new question. Is Jesus actually the Son of God? You see, this is why John put it here. This is why we are here tonight. This is why we are looking at this. This is why John wants us to look into this. Because every person who looks at Jesus Christ must answer that question. Is he guilty or is he not? In the words of our beloved Joe, who is now with the Lord, do you not know that the Bible says Jesus is God? Here it is. He has made himself out to be God. Was his claim factual or not? This is the question that all must face. This is the question that all must give an answer. When the jury is tallied as to what their individual verdict is, what's it going to be? I've had the unfortunate task of sitting on a jury trial. Some of you who may have gone to do your duties in jury in our wondrous country may have had that same dubious task. You had to give an answer. Well, in any trial, in order to find out the facts so as to determine guilt or innocence, they call to the stand witnesses don't they they call witnesses okay so let's do that tonight let's call witnesses to testify concerning the validity or falseness of this claim for which Jesus is being accused in fact let's call the most important witness first you know, oftentimes you save the, the, the most important witness last, but let's call the most important witness first. Let's call God the Father to the stand and ask Him if Jesus is God. Now certainly we could turn to all kinds of places in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, that point to Jesus. And the prophets who spoke of the coming one, and none of them really explicitly name him by name, Jesus. We know that he's there. It's in less clear terms, but we know that he's in the Old Testament for sure. So let's, instead of doing that, turn to the words of God the Father during his life, during the life of Jesus on the earth. Go back for a moment with me to John or to Matthew chapter 3 Matthew chapter 3 this gives us a starting point testimony of God all right 
God the Father, you're on the stand, and I don't want to sound sacrilegious here by any stretch, but we're kind of playing a scenario in our minds. Is Jesus God? Well, let me tell you my story. Here is Jesus Christ at his baptism. He is being baptized by John the Baptist, and when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Bible tells us this is what God says. Jesus arrives in Galilee, verse 13, at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. Behold, But John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? And Jesus says to him, permit this for this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, and behold, a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Jews held Abraham in high esteem. And yet God only said of Abraham that Abraham was a friend. They stood on the kingship of David. And God said that David was just a man after his own heart. But of Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son. This was the testimony of God. This was the testimony of God before Jesus was ever known in a public way. This is the testimony of God before Jesus was ever sent off by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the tempter. This is God's testimony of His Son before any kind of notoriety. Well, somebody might say, okay, well, that's fine. Okay, we see that. But maybe Jesus started out well. Maybe he, his life began well, but, but maybe he didn't end so well. What did God say to him or say of him at the end of his life? We'll turn over to Matthew chapter 17. Just to get a little picture of Jesus Christ. Towards the end of his life, Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and a cloud envelops them. And from the cloud, Peter hears the voice that says to them, This is my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, verse 5, chapter 17 of Matthew. This is my son. It is in him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Even at the very end of his earthly life, as Jesus was giving up his last breath, the curtain of the temple that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, the place where God had come down and resided with the Jews that curtain was torn in half from top to bottom, signifying God's satisfaction with His Son, Jesus Christ, in whom He was well pleased. So God the Father testifies that Jesus is the Son. 
Well, what about God the Spirit? What about God the Spirit? Well, we studied it some time ago, but we can just remind ourselves really quickly back in John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. Jesus had said that he will ask the Father and he will give another helper, chapter 14, verse 16, that he may be with you forever. That's the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it doesn't behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. It's a little while, but this is going to happen. And the guys are, are confused or foggy eyed all about this. And so by the time you get to John chapter 16, Jesus tells them clearly, now I am going to him who sent me, verse 5 of chapter 16, and none of you ask me where are you going, but because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you, but if I do, I will send him to you, and when he comes, here it is, he will convict the world of sin, he will convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged and I have a whole lot more things to say to you but you cannot stand them now but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth why he will not speak on his own initiative but what he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come for he shall glorify me he'll take of mine and shall disclose it to you all things that are the father has are mine therefore I said he takes of mine and will disclose it to you that's simply saying that the spirit will tell you exactly what I've said because the spirit and I are one because God and the spirit and I are one. The Spirit does one thing. He testifies concerning Jesus Christ. He testifies concerning the reality of who Jesus Christ is. The entire New Testament is the Spirit's witness of the deity of Jesus Christ. So God the Father confirms the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. The Spirit confirms the claim or gives testimony. Both give testimony to the claim. Well, what about the accused? What about Jesus himself? What does he testify concerning himself? Well, John 8 gives us an interesting insight into that. John 8, Jesus is being questioned by the leadership. It's a rather long exchange, but I want to read this because it solidifies in our mind concerning their relationship to God. I find it very interesting. I was talking with Randy this morning about this very passage. Notice beginning in verse 31. Well, actually, go back a little bit. Jesus has just dealt with the adulterous woman who had come. The Pharisees had dragged her out of the house right in the act of adultery and said, what do you say about this? And of course, we all know the account. Jesus goes down to the sand, writes something in the sand. We don't know what he wrote, but they understood it. And when he came up, they weren't there. You without sin cast the first stone, he says to them. And no one's there. He says, neither do I contemn you. And then he starts talking about who he is. I'm the light of the world, verse 12. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And of course, the Pharisees are there. They're listening to him. You're bearing witness of yourself. 
you're right. I am. In one sense, I am. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. Why? Because I know where I came from. I know where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. There's an indictment. You don't recognize who I am. You people judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. Why? Because I'm not alone in it. What do you mean you're not alone? Well, I and the one who sent me are one. There's a proclamation of deity. Jesus goes on with this kind of back and forth talk with them. In verse 24, he says, I said to you, therefore, that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. That's a proclamation of deity. Unless you believe that I'm very existence itself, the very same words that God said to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. And so they're saying to them, who are you? And Jesus says, what have I been saying from the beginning? In other words, believe what I said. And they didn't realize that he'd been speaking about to them about the Father. And Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. I don't do anything on my unknown initiative. I speak the things as the Father taught me, and he who sent me with and he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Shocking. Jesus therefore was saying to those Jews who had believed him. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Uh, as a believer, that would be good news, wouldn't it? As a believer, that would be very helpful for us. That would be very a learning moment. Oh, I need to abide in you. I need to, to follow you. I need to walk with you. I need to do what you say. And they answered him. Now remember, these are people who believed him, claimed him, They answered him, we are Abraham's offspring. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Sounds like an innocent question in some sense. Explain to us further. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son shall make you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me. Just a few verses back, you said they were believers. It says here they believed. And Jesus says, but you're seeking to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they said, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, If you were the children of Abraham, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. And they said, we weren't born in fornication. In other words, Abraham's our father. We we don't have an illegitimate father. We have one father. Who? God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. I proceeded forth from and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative. He sent me. 
Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, not Abraham, not a father of some other human realm. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and he doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever, whatever he, uh, whenever he hears or he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he's a liar and a father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, then why don't you believe me? In other words, if you can't convict me of sin, then why don't you believe? Oh, we, we said we believe. Yeah, but you're wanting to kill me. You, you don't have a relationship with me if you don't define me rightly. You can't have a Jesus of another kind. There is no other Jesus. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you don't hear me. Why? Because you're not of God. And the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now they're starting to accuse him. Jesus said, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now the Jews go, now we've heard it. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. The prophets died. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, you shall never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. And the prophets who died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Greater than them? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. You see, there's people everywhere who say, I believe in God. I believe in God. Jesus is okay with me. I believe in God. And he says, you say you believe in God, and yet you have not come to know him. But I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews, who said they believed, who said they had a relationship with God, the people who apparently were following him picked up stones and wanted to throw them at him. They have a law. And according to that law, you must die. And he made himself out to be the son of God. And they wanted to kill him. God the Father confirms the claim. The Spirit confirms the claim. And Jesus Christ, the accused himself, confirms the claim. And so in several different ways, here in even John 8, Jesus is declaring his sonship. He is declaring his godness. He is declaring his deity. And they understand his claim. 
You remember in John chapter 10, he claimed, I and the Father are one. And even in the final week of his life, he said in John chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know who God is? Jesus Christ. Look to him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so at least as the witnesses go, at least as we've seen so far, these three have a very strong validity as to the claim of who Jesus is. Let alone the fact that this is the very reason that he's being tried and condemned. Because even the Jews say in chapter, in verse 7, he made himself out to be the Son of God. Are there other witnesses? I mean, I mean, that should be enough, but are there other witnesses? Were there others who could be called to testify? Sure there is. We could call the entire host of the angelic realm. Right? They have certainly testified to the validity of who Jesus Christ is. We know it well when Jesus was born. In fact, before he was born, Gabriel was dispatched. The archangel appears to Mary and he says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary says to the angel, How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers and says to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Luke chapter 1 verse 35. The angel said to the shepherds, that this one who was born is Christ the Lord. Even the fallen angels have given testimony to who Jesus is. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is about to cast out the demons from the man in Gennesaret. And the demons say to Jesus... What business do you have with each of us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know what's coming. They know what God has decreed. They know their end. And they say to Jesus, Why are you here, Son of God? Are you here to torment us before the time has come? So listen, beloved. The Godhead has given testimony to the validity of the claim that the Jews are making here. The complete angelic realm has given testimony to the claim that the Jews are making here. What about the human realm? We all have it right here before us, don't we? We all have it sitting right on our laps. Every gospel writer gives the testimony to the validity of who Jesus Christ is. Matthew's gospel gives testimony as to the validity of what the prophets said about Jesus. They said that he would be born of a virgin and that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. 
Mark begins his gospel with these words, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke, who's a doctor and a historian, because we have two books from him, Luke and Acts, which is historical, he surely would have investigated the truth of what was said, and he declares that Jesus is the Son of the Most High, chapter 1, verse 32. He says he's the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 35, and he is Christ the Lord, chapter 2, verse 11. John, of course where we are currently studying, he has given the most explicit of testimonies concerning Jesus. Turn back there for a moment so we can hear it in our ears again. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel. Most explicit testimony of all. John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John begins with those words, and John ends with the words that I have reminded us of over and over and over again. These things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Even John the Baptist declared Jesus to be the Son of God. John chapter 1, verse 34. Martha proclaims the same truth. John chapter 11, verse 27. Peter says to Jesus, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew chapter 16, verse 15 and following. And Jesus never rebuked any one of them for speaking about Him in that way. Jesus, being a good, devout Jewish boy, a good, devout Jew, never saw others claiming Him to be God as blasphemy. Even His dying on the cross brought open testimony to who He is. We know it well. We'll see it in a few weeks. The thieves who were dying with Jesus Christ, one asked him to remember him when he entered into his kingdom. He was acknowledging Jesus Christ's deity. You are the king, proclaiming his right to rule, while the other just mocked him. The centurion who watched Jesus Christ die on the cross... The, the, the man who had participated in and seen many a people die. All he could say in the end when he witnessed the death of Jesus Christ was this. Luke 23 verse 47 and Matthew 27 54 say the same thing. Surely this was a righteous man. This was the Son of God. The Godhead declared it. The angelic realm declares it. Righteous, saved humanity, the New Testament writers say it, even unsaved humanity, the centurion declares Jesus is God, to say the least, that the demons know who he is. All of these are strong testimony concerning who Jesus is. 
And I guess the point I'm trying to get tonight is this. We need to consider this because in reality as people, we are the jury in the trial. We listen to the testimony. We hear the accused. We're the jury. We've witnessed all that has been said. We've sat through the trial. And although we may not have walked with him when he walked the earth, we've heard about him. We've heard what he said as we have looked at the scriptures. And there are myriads of Christians who are believing it. And we know that. And we are now called to investigate this accusation. He made himself out to be the son of God. So here's the question that we need to have in our minds and our hearts tonight. Not only to ask ourselves that by necessity, but to also ask others of that. What do you think about Jesus? What is your verdict concerning Jesus? Is he the son of God as he claimed to be? You see, we have seen all the evidence. We have seen it all. When I was on that jury trial, the jury, as we were back in the room, would ask the judge, hey, can we see that evidence again? We have seen it over and over and over again. What does the evidence show? Is it true of him? What is our verdict? It's decision time. You see, there's a big difference as a juror today. There's a big difference between being a juror today and a juror concerning the claim of Jesus. You say, what do you mean? I mean that in a trial today and within our own court system, a juror, you have one job. You have one job. You listen to the evidence and you make a decision about the accused. Are they guilty or are they not guilty? And depending upon the decision you make as a juror, the accused's life will be changed forever. Based on the decision you make, <clears throat> that person's life will either be changed and forever changed as a guilty person or not. And when you walk out of the courtroom on that day, your duty as a juror is finished. You have done your civic duty. You can gladly go to the cashier and collect your pittance of $15 a day that our country loves to pay you for that. Hoping that you'll never have to do that again. But as a juror at the trial of Jesus Christ... You still must make a decision concerning the accused. But there's one big difference concerning the decision that you will make. The decision you will make will have no effect on the accused. But it will have a monumental effect upon you. You see, the difference in this case is that the decision that we make concerning Jesus 
it will determine not the destiny of Jesus. It will determine our destiny. Do you behold the man? Or do you behold the Son of God? What you decide will change everything for you. That's the question. Let's pray. Father, we hear these things. We think about these things. We are challenged with these things. And we know that whatever it is we decide, for those who are here who do not yet acknowledge Jesus Christ as God, who have not turned from their sin and embraced Him as who He is, the Son of God, they will face if they do not turn, if they refuse and reject Your mercy, they will spend an eternity facing the wrath that You have for them. But if they will believe the evidence, believe what You've shown, believe what You've said, and You will grant mercy to them and grace in their life, forgiveness of their sin, and their penalty will be wiped away. And they will enter into Your family, the King of glory, a life of everlasting joy. What will it be? What will the decision be? Lord, I pray that you would break the hearts of those who do not know you. That by your grace and your mercy you would open their eyes to their sin. And that you would cause us who do know you to share these things with others. With boldness, compassion, love. Challenging them to make a decision. This is who Jesus is. What do you say about Jesus? Because whatever your verdict is, it will have an effect on you. Father, may that impact us for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.